We are in the middle, smack dab in the middle of a series called Be Prepared, and I can't, uh, now we're to the point that I can't recap it as well. Uh, You'll have to go back and listen to where we started, but it's basically the idea that um, as we live in a culture uh, that continues to move further and further and further away from God, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, But we want to kind of own the part of, of where Christians respond to this as well in terms of kind of how do we get here and what do we need to go back and be prepared for and have a better understanding of in order to be prepared to have the conversations that God's called us to have, all right? And so uh, I basically introduced that we have, we have a misunderstanding usually in Christian culture around two things. Uh, one is this idea of evangelism. We kind of reserve that to street preachers and bullhorns and you know, people who are extroverted and people who kind of go out of their way to, to kind of bring Jesus up all the time. We kind of have this idea of evangelism. Uh, the same thing goes for this word apolog- uh, apologetics. And um, sometimes they feel like those are just for scholars or professors that kind of create arguments and, you know, write papers and all that kind of thing for, for Christian positions. And um, the reality is, is that both of those are really misunderstandings of what we've been called to do, all of us, as followers of Christ. Now, yes, are there apologists that are extremely smart and well-versed? Yes. Um, but in terms of where we were called to be an apologist, every single one of us um, is from that Greek word apologia, is to have a defense. And it comes from our theme verse. Uh, this is our theme verse. Hopefully you saw it on the trailer, but it's also there. Oh, sorry. This is how we break down those two things, just to make it simple, uh, versus evangelism and, and apologetics. Is we're, we're called to share the good news and to respond with the reason why, Okay. And, and, and here's where we'll come to that. We, we, we have to share the good news with, each, with those who don't know God, but we have to respond with the reason why we have decided to make Christ the Lord of our life, because this is the theme verse we have. Um, this is from Peter saying, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And because of that, you need to always be prepared, right? Always be ready to, uh, to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have, Right? And, and, and sometimes we, again, misunderstand the idea that our job as Christians is to try to convince other people to become Christians. And that's not exactly the way it's taught. We, talk, we hear a lot in Scripture about heralding the Gospels and sharing the good news about what Christ has done. And then here we see this apologia. Have a defense. Have a reason why you believe what you believe, right? Have a reason why you are living with Christ as Lord of your life. And I basically said there's three things that we come back to that we should come back to anyway in terms of our apologetics, our reason why, um, in terms of being prepared. One is understanding that Christ, Jesus, the resurrected Savior, is the only way. And we spent almost all of last week just talking about this one thing. There's also the acceptance of mercy and grace, which we're going to kind of view and look at a little bit today, this undeserved and unmerited mercy and grace of God. And the third... Uh, is the unexplainable personal transformation. This idea that, sure, we can use logic and you know, philosophical debates and conversations and social ideology and all that to kind of get into the conversation, um, but we're going to come back to this idea that there are some things that are just unexplainable, uh, especially when it comes to the personal transformation and growth that might be happening in your life. Now, last week, I did begin this for you and kind of we're going to continue this, is that apologetics, at least so you understand where we come from as a church, they begin and end in Scripture, okay? Again, not that we don't use logic or reason or understanding and those things to have apologetic conversations, right? Not that we don't get into that conversation any which way we can, but it's going to begin and end with Scripture primarily because that is our source of absolute truth, 
And the same thing will be true of the fact that, quite frankly, it's because we believe it's a source of absolute truth. It doesn't really require a consensus. It doesn't require the person we're talking to or other people to believe that the Bible. I mean, you'll hear people argue it all the time. Well, I don't care what your Bible says, and I don't care what you know, this and that. You can't talk to me about that. Well, I can because, you know, I, I believe that it's the source of absolute truth. So it doesn't require consensus. It requires a conviction on your end. So it begins with you. And it requires, and it's going to end with Scripture in terms of, begins with Scripture in you, and ends with Scripture in terms of how it's, our reasoning in terms of why we believe what we believe. Matter of fact, this is the way uh, Paul says it to Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I love those four words from the NIV, like, here's what this, you know, this, this living, breathing, active Word of God does. It, t- it teaches us things we need to know. It rebukes us and tells us we're wrong. Okay, even though we feel like we're right, we're wrong. It corrects us, meaning it does, kind of, it does that transformative work. It's transforming and renewing our mind. It corrects our thinking, and it trains us. It equips us, what? To be prepared, right? To be prepared to have some of the conversations that we need to have. Last week, again, going back to the first point, we'll continue to come back to this, that Jesus told Mrs. John that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I can't recap last week, but he basically was like, look, it's my way or the highway. Literally, there's a verse that says that. It's my way or the highway. It's, uh, there, there's nothing you do and you don't bring anything to the table of, etern- of eternal significance that matters. And so the reality is, is that one of the reasons we make Christ the Lord of our life in terms of responding with a reason is the fact that he's the only option. Not the only option to choose to live for today, in terms of, you know, a lot of people can choose to live for today for any reason. But in terms of living with Christ as Lord of my life, I, have to, I do that because he is the only way to be made right with God. There's no discussion or negotiation. Mankind doesn't bring anything to the table. And again, that's why we, last week we talked about it. Like you have to know that sometimes the gospel is offensive to people. To tell people they, they don't bring anything to the equation really does cause some people to live in offense. Today, we're going to piggyback off of that conversation and build on it to understand, again, the definition and the understanding of where we come from in terms of mercy and grace and how this plays into our reason why, in terms of our apologetics or our reason uh, why we believe what we believe. Now, I'm going to give you the quick definition or a quick, quick you know, overview in terms of, you could say this about anything, but to understand mercy and grace, sometimes they're just you know, one of the two sides of the same coin. But you have to understand that what's significantly different. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. So in terms of ju- the justice system, you'll hear this sometimes in courtrooms, or you'll hear it, you know, that, that, that there's something, there's a punishment or a penalty, and someone will throw themselves at the mercy of the court, right, the mercy of the court, to not get what they deserve in terms of the eyes of the law, but they want mercy. They really want to have that merciful act to not receive that. Now, grace, on the other hand, is similar, but it's, it's receiving what you don't deserve, meaning that you, you, you get something you didn't earn. You receive something you couldn't attain. There's no way you could have achieved it. There's no way you could have attained it or got it. Like it was given to you as a gift, and that's grace. So again, we sometimes in Christian circles, we'll talk about these things and sometimes always apply grace to it, but really there's an understanding of what, what is mercy and what is grace. 
And so today we're going to jumpstart the conversation by looking at an encounter that two people had with Jesus. And if you want to turn your Bibles, it's Luke. We're going to look at Luke 7, but I'll put it up on the screen for you as well. Luke 7 talks about these two encounters, or sorry, the, the, the encounter with Jesus by two different people, and just how different the, their encounters, engagement with Jesus is, and, and what we can learn from it, all right? Let's go to Luke 7. This is going to jump into verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked to have dinner with Jesus, or asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his house and to eat with him. When a certain immoral woman from the city had heard that he was eating there, Jesus, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. I gave the visual earlier. It's kind of hard to do without anything here. But um, in, in that culture, you know, the way they would recline or lean at the table is they would have kind of the table here and a little small thing to lean on. And their body would kind of lean on the table with their arms or something kind of against the table, and their feet would be behind them. So even then when they were turned to talk, it wasn't like a chair like we think of today, when they would turn and talk and eat and fellowship with one another, they were basically kind of doing this, so their feet were behind them. And this is the visual they're giving. Like, this woman came up behind Jesus while he was eating with this Pharisee and was washing his feet and crying and weeping and, and uh, anointing his feet with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Self, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, this is important because he's kind of saying this to himself, not saying it out loud, but he's disgusted by the, by the sight. It's like, I know who this woman is, like the sin that this woman, you know, like if this, guy, if this guy were a prophet, because again, you know, they both see Jesus for who they think Jesus is. He says, well, if this guy was a prophet, he would know who's touching him. He would know who's messing with his feet. She's a sinner. He, would not, he wouldn't stand for this. And then it goes on to say that Jesus answered his thoughts. Now, that's a scary sentence to me. I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I want Jesus answering my thoughts versus the questions that I eventually form. So Jesus says, Simon, he says, the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Well, go ahead, teacher. Go ahead, rabbi. I mean, he wants to, he wants to hear what Jesus is saying. I mean, he invited him over. This is a, an act of respect. And it says, Jesus told him this story, kind of like he would often do with parables. He said, look, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. And ne neither of them, neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. And Jesus says, hey, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Who, who do you think loved that guy more? And, and the Pharisee, Simon, says, well, I suppose the one who he canceled the larger debt. And that's right, Jesus said, good answer. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at the woman kneeling here. So he's, he's addressing her, but talking to Simon as he looks at her, he says, look at the woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust off my feet, which would have been customary, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He says, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. 
and you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. But she has anointed me, or anointed my feet, with rare perfume. And he says, I tell you, her sins, <laughs> and they are many. Don't you love that little add-on by Jesus? Uh, and, and I think he says it out loud because, again, these are, all the, these are all Simon's thoughts. Like, if he only knew how much of a sinner she really was. And his response is, yeah, but I do know. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. So, he shows, so she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows very little love. And it goes on to say, then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. He actually will say it twice in this encounter to her. It's a very interesting encounter that Jesus has with these two, two people who, who really kind of come from two very different positions. And, it, and it based, it's based on how they see themselves. Again, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is, quote unquote, from God. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. Um, kind of on the surface, they both see Jesus the same way. But one of the people in this encounter, one of the people that is having this connection with Jesus, well, they feel entitled to be there. They feel self-righteous, meaning that they've, you know, they've earned that to be there with Jesus. They're self-sufficient. While the other one is unworthy and knows they are, is repentant, is, is humbled, or probably even a better word would be humiliated. And yet both Simon and Jesus see her as a sinner and they react differently to her. Now, the lesson here is simple. I mean, it's not a very difficult lesson. Jesus is like, who do you think was forgiven? <laughs> who do you think loved, much, loved the most? And he says, look, guys, it depends on how you see things. It's going to depend on how you respond. And he was giving this very simple thing to Simon to say, of course, you know, the guy with the larger debt is canceled. You've, those who have been forgiven much will love much. But Jesus' bigger picture here was casting a light on how they both viewed Jesus, because we will always view, view Jesus in light of how we see ourselves. We will always approach and encounter Christ in light of how we actually see us, in terms of how we see ourselves. And a lot of that has to do with how we understand sin. So I'm going to very quickly kind of take a quick detour because I have to do some theological uh, foundational work in terms of our understanding of sin before we can get back to a real acceptance and understanding of grace and mercy. So very simply, in a very kind of biblical definition, sin, sin is any thought, word, deed, or motive that attempts to dethrone God. And again, I know that sounds a little churchy and, and stuff, but it's, it's just a big, broad definition to help you understand that when Christ wants to be the Lord of your life, because that's what we're talking about, Christ, living with Christ as Lord of our life, anything that takes focus off of him, anything outside of him, anything outside of his ways, kind of that, that, that lose, uh, we, we shift our focus and he, you know, we kind of replace him, uh, put a throne up for somebody else or replace him on the throne. He's like, that's what sin is. Now you can go through the New Testament and look up list after list after list after list, but that's just a broad understanding of sin. Now, the two things that we know are true is that we, you and I, we assume God measures our sin like we do. 
But the second truth is that we are wrong. Okay? Now, I'm going to throw this out there. Just so you, I'm going to give you some visuals so you can understand this and kind of take it with you. But the reality is, is that you're going to follow me logically, even if you've been raised in church, you're going to follow me logically. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. But, but I just want you to understand that I, I get it. You're going to follow me logically, but it's not going to connect to your heart very well. Like it takes a while for it to really connect and sink into the heart, the stuff I'm getting ready to say. Why? Because the way in which we assume God measures our sin has been so indoctrinated into our culture and into who we are as humans. That's a, it's really a humanistic point of view. And I used to call this um, uh, Shades of Grey until the book ruined it, until the book and the movie ruined it. Um, but this is simply man's view of sin. Now, I'm not talking about Christians here. I'm talking about mankind, like man's view of what is right and wrong in terms of what you would classify as sin. And there are certain things that might be in the gray area, but they don't even really count as sin, like greed and cheating and lying and gossip. And most of us would be like, eh, that's probably not great to do. But, you know, it, it is, it's hard. It's hard for people to admit that that's probably a sin, even though you can go to the New Testament and see that it's a sin right? Gossiping, lying, cheating, all that kind of thing. It's a sin. It's listed as a sin because it's a sin. So, you know, but, but it kind of sits in that really white lie-ish kind of gray area of it's not that bad of a sin. Because we, again, we measure sin in this way. We categorize it in this way. And we assume God does the same. Because there are sins that are worse than that, right? Which is a whole nother layer you, you could act out in anger and hurt someone. You could, it could be sexual sin. It could be abuse, verbal, physical, across the board. Like we, we look at those things and we'd be like, oh my gosh, those are so much worse than lying, right? That's so much worse than lying. Like, it, like we, we begin to kind of measure it the same way. And we, again, we instinctively, humanistically think that God does the same thing. We just assume it. And then, of course, there are ones that are sort of the worst, or you could define it as worse, porn, murder, rape, molestation. Like, I don't know, if you were to give me a list of what you think the worst of the worst of the worst is, you, you might have a different list than me. But that could be, you know, I'm trying to say, like, that's, that's just all in how we just naturally, humanistic thinking, man's view, we see sin. And guys, I'm telling you, this affects how we see God. This affects how we approach Jesus. And it definitely affects our understanding of mercy and grace. The problem with this view is that, it's, is that there's nothing objective at all. Given enough time and given enough social acceptance, we enter into what I call the cultural sliding scale. All right? This is, cultural, this is culture sliding scale. That given enough time and social acceptance, whatever we're getting, like things can start moving all over the place from one category to another you know, take 50 years ago, 60 years ago, there was a certain place for vulgarity, you know, mainly sailors, you know, if you hit your hand with a hammer or something like that, right? Like there was, there was a certain place for it, but it certainly wasn't going to be on TV at night and it wasn't going to be in certain, you know, avenues and, you know, and people, parents washed their kids out with soap and their mouth out with soap and all sorts of things because vulgarity was not seen as something good. It was seen as something bad. It was seen as a sin. But nowadays, you know, again, again given enough time and, and, and social acceptance, there's, I mean, there's movies 
that are nothing but vulgar language, vulgar things, like, like, like it's celebrated. They're, you can barely tell anymore if something can, you know, there's hardly any standards on TV as to what might be allowed to be said at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock versus 6 o'clock and whatever the case is. Like, it's slowly progressed over time and social acceptance. And I'm going to give you a few more examples, but they can, be, they can be anything. I mean, I'm just letting you know, like this, again, I'm not talking about Christians. I'm just talking about culture, Western culture in general, all right? At one time, it viewed premarital sex as a sin. And that slowly but surely over time changed. Talk to your grandparents' generation and your parents' generation. They would have all seen it a little bit differently in terms of the sliding scale. But to be honest, from the first time I ever made this chart to now, I mean, the reality is, is that Premarital sex is not, not only not considered a sin in our culture, but it's expected. It's an expectation of our, of our dating and, our, and, and of our relationships in our culture. Like, how else are you going to, you know, get to know if you're attracted to somebody and if things are clicking or whatever the case is. Like, physical uh, closeness and premarital sex are all part of this relationship, you know, expectations nowadays that there's no way that majority of culture would even consider it a sin regardless of what the Bible says. It just won't be. Culture was the same way. At one time, abortion. You know, you talk about 75 years ago. Abortion would have been seen as, as, as the killing of the innocent. It would have been seen as, as wrong, as bad, as sin. And, and then you go throughout, the, throughout time of how cultural things have continued to change. Now, some countries still view things this way. But again, you're talking about 2022. Given enough time... And social acceptance, not only is it not a sin, but it is, is actually something that people fight for. They fight for the right to this, right? The, the, the actual, whatever they call it now, the reproductive right for this, for women. So it's not even considered a sin at all. Not if it's a right, not if it's something you should be allowed to do no matter what. Same thing would be true for homosexuality. Again, that's, we're just talking about cultural norms and extremes. You know, what was considered a sin, where it fell into the shades of gray for you, who knows. But again, in terms of our culture, it doesn't even fall in the gray anymore. It's, for our culture, it's one of the most championed, you know, pushing to be the most normative thing you've ever seen in our culture. It's celebrated across the board in, in, in uh, um, Hollywood and movies and television shows and literature and writing. It is now the most champion cause we've ever had in our modern day culture for it to not be considered even remotely in a shade of gray, but can be completely viewed as, as fine, normal, good. Guys, this, that's not the church. Understand, this is not the church's scale. This is our world. This is where we live. And the problem with this, just understand the problem as a culture with this, is that if, if it's like nothing but a cultural sliding scale, it means there is no absolute whatsoever. Right? Given enough time, given enough social acceptance, anything on this list can be worse or can be not as bad as it once was. That's the problem with, with the, the, a man-centered, humanistic assumption that when we approach God, that he views these things the exact same way we do. It's also one of the reasons that Christians are pretty screwed up. It's also one of the reasons that churches struggle to share the good news and reflect the reason why they live as Lord of their life, because they reflect this to the culture. They don't cast any difference. They just reflect these same values. 
well, this sin's worse than this sin, and this one's not that bad, and this one's not as, not as evil, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I know, I know the Bible used to say, but they start working around it. It means there's no absolute. The problem is this is just not how God sees it. This is not God's view. Paul says it this way to the church in, in Rome, the Christians in Rome. He says, look, we're all, we're all made right with God by placing our faith in Christ. This is going back to what we talked about last week. We have a righteousness with God, a right standing because of Jesus, the only way. This is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. Again, it's an exclusive truth with an inclusive invitation. It's an exclusive truth that doesn't seem fair, but it's an inclusive invitation. Meaning it doesn't matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, everybody gets the offer. If you believe, you can be made right with God. And then it goes on to say, but, but everyone has sinned. He's not just talking about behavior. He's talking about everyone was born into sin. Everyone, everyone has sin kind of attached to them from birth. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short of that objective view of God. God's objective view that there is a standard by which we cannot achieve. Keep going. Yet God, some, some versions are like, but God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He does this through Christ Jesus, again, who freed us from the penalty of our sins. He tells him in Romans later on, look, the penalty of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. Like that's, that's what you get. That's the default position. But by his grace, but God, by his grace, you can receive something else that you can't earn. You can't you know, achieve this on your own. It's unmerited. And then you start going, okay, well, that's fine. And so we, we start trying to understand this idea of, a, well, we all fall short and all those things are kind of falling short. And, you know, but I'm still like... Like the reality is, is that, you know, you know, I'm picking on Jason here in the front row, but like there's a difference between lying to Jason and killing Jason. Would you all agree to that? Yes? Yeah? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Jason agrees. Yeah. There's a pretty big difference, right? And so we still can't help but kind of measure and compare and kind of approach, view ourselves in light of, yeah, I, I mean, I know all of it is sin because again, we can logically get there. But that's still not as bad as, it's still not to the degree of. And then Paul's got this written so many places. I chose this verse from James, the brother of Jesus, just because it's as clear as it can be. The person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who's broken all of God's laws. And again, guys, from our Western modern like, mindset, it's like, whoa, that's not fair. Okay, Why? Because lying to Jason and killing Jason are two different things right? Nothing better happen to Jason or this video is going to incriminate me. Anyway, <laughs> they're two different things, right? Like, like, like we just can't sometimes get there, but James and Paul and Peter and Jesus wanted to make it really, really clear to people that like, look, you've got this instinctive human nature to try to outpace one another and compare one, you know, compare yourself to somebody else. But the reality is, is because sin has a standard or God has a standard and sin is objective. Like if you, if you fail at one, you kind of failed at all of them. Like that's just the way it is. 
Like if you fail at one, the things you're trying to put your stock in, the things you're trying to put your trust in, you, the, the rule, the law, he's like, you're going to fail at all of them. Even if you don't do all of them, it's just like you did. So again, this is God's view, and this is something we have to continually come back to, where Jesus says, good luck in trying, okay? Your, your idea of going, uh, I'm not going to be as angry as I once was, you know, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to count to 10, you know? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie as much, I'm not, I'm not going to gossip, I'm going to try to do this and that, you know? Well, I mean, I mean, it's nothing compared to murder. And yet God's view is sin is sin. Sin separates us from God. There's a standard that God has, and sin is every sin separates us from him. And it doesn't matter what it is. That's where we find ourselves. That's where everyone resides. Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus, and, and I love this, this description. Paul kind of goes on a little bit of a, of a theological teaching to the church in Ephesus and says it this way. Once you were, read the word out loud. Yeah, once you were, what's the word? Dead. Yeah, dead. Because of your disobedience and your many sins. Leave that up, Camilla, if you don't mind. I, I love this. This is, what, this is what hit me when I was reading through this myself. was just this idea that how, again, how starkly different our approach to Jesus is when we have a correct view and understanding of who we are. And in our, in our modern, more civilized age and culture, you know, we're not, we're probably in this room, you, you, you I could go over to most people, and you, you might not have ever seen a dead body, like a true dead body. And I, you know, I usually sometimes, sometimes I'll throw things out there and I have to be warned sometimes that I don't give any context sometimes when I make statements. Apparently a few weeks ago, I said something about exhuming bodies from the earth and I gave no context for it at all. And I, I'm, and I'm hope you're a visitor who returned, you know, I really hope that that, that didn't scare you off. But the reality is and the context for it is that before I was in full time, uh, vocational ministry in the church, uh, my career, my education was in mortuary science. Was in, was, I was a funeral director. So I had a great deal of interaction with dead people. And again, around the world, this is very different in other cultures. And to who Paul is writing, when Paul says that you were dead, they would have had a really good picture of this. And yet I know that in our modern Western thing, we don't want to show people dead things. They try not to show it on TV. They try not to do this and that because, you know, people are sensitive and it might trigger something and all that. But I, I want you to understand, like even in funerals, like and I know why, but like just think about the funerals themselves. Like we take someone who's dead and we as funeral directors do everything we can to make them look alive and sleeping. Everybody with me? Like, we paint them up, and somebody will give us a picture, be like, well, this is dad, you know? Okay, great. And we'll try to color cheeks and kind of put, we put some stuff on the hands, and we make it look like they're just resting and sleeping. And, and trust me, for the grieving process, I know why we do that. Like, I think it's okay to do that. But, but if you've never really encountered death, death is a different story. Death, death is lifeless. Like when you, when you see, you know, bones and muscle and skin and matter that is empty and void and nothing. And then you go to Paul 
who says, yeah, that was, that was everybody. Once you were just as dead as dead can be. Not mostly dead, but slightly alive, right? All my Princess Bride fans out there, right? <laughs> not mostly dead, but slightly alive. Not, not sort of kind of a dim little flickering light that just needed the air to kind of blow to rage. No, dead, dead. He says, this is who you were. You were absolutely dead because of sin, death. And then it goes on to say, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. You obeyed the devil and the commander, the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Like this is, this is the active work of the enemy of God who works in the hearts of those who are dead. And he goes on to say, all of us used to live that way, right? We followed the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Like we just kind of leaned into whatever we wanted, whatever our heart wanted, whatever our nature wanted, whatever we thought was natural, we kind of leaned into that. And yet by our own very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Some say God's wrath, just like everyone else. He's talking to the church. He's like, this is who you were. And then he goes on to say, but God, man, I love these verses. He is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, even though that's who we were, lifeless, empty, void, nothing, he gave us life. How? Well, when he raised to Christ from the dead. Like it, it was totally connected to Christ because it's the only by God's grace that you've been saved. He'll say that again in a minute, but he continues to go on and says, when he raised us from the dead along with Christ, he seats him, uh, seats him in the heavenly realms because we are now united with Christ. Some, some version says co-heirs with Christ. God points to us and all future ages for examples of the incredible wealth of his Grace, the incredible storehouse, the fullness of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he did for us when he united us with Christ. Again, all of this is through Christ. And then he goes on to say, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It's a gift. Again, you can't achieve it. You can't earn it. It can't be something that you were good enough to get. It's not a reward. He says that next. He says, salvation is not a reward for the good things that you've done. So that none of us can boast about it. None of us can, can say, good way to go us, you know? Getting saved is not the smartest thing you've ever done. Everybody with me? It's not the best idea you've ever came up with. It's not you. It's all from him. It's all grace. It's all from God. God does not measure sin the way that we do at all. It's all sin, and all sin is death. We were dead until Christ made us alive. So here's what's really cool. There is, a me there is some scripture that talks about the measurement of things, but it's not the measurement of sin. It's the measurement of his mercy and his grace. See, every time it talks about mercy, it was God who is so rich in mercy. God who had more than enough 
mercy. God who is ample in mercy. The Old Testament says his mercies are new every morning, man. Like they're, they're not scarce. They're not, they're not running on empty, right? They're new every morning. His mercy so that we can be forgiven of our sin, so that we can, so the clean slate can happen, so that when he sees you, it's not like your sin isn't there. It is, but it's covered by the blood of Christ. It's the mercy of God who is so rich and ample and full of mercy, more than enough for you. And then we get grace. We get something we could never have achieved on our own. He gives us right standing with him. And and again, going back to measurements, every time you talk about the grace of God, it's the fullness of his grace. Everybody with me? Not the partial little, you know, doling it out a little bit every day grace. The fullness of grace. The, 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 uh, The full picture because of the work of his son. The fullness of grace. Here's Paul to the Galatians when he talks about this, mercy and grace. He says, my old self's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. God sees Christ. I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Which is why he says this. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. I do not treat the grace of God as if it doesn't really matter. If, I, if keeping the law could have made this right with God, there would have been no need for Christ to die. He says it several other times in several different ways, but if all of this, you know, if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our hope is nothing. Our faith is nothing. He said, my old self had to die. So when it comes to this call to be prepared to share the good news, and to respond with our reason why Christ is now the Lord of our life. Guys, we, you and I can never get past mercy and grace. Like that is so, has to be so much of a part of our story. That there's, there's no way you can respond with just sort of like logical facts. Well, you know, because this and that and this and because of that. Not, not if you truly see yourself the way Jesus sees you. Not if, you, not if you are approaching him. Now, I'll be honest. A lot of Christians who say they're following Christ slip back into that comfortable seat like Simon the Pharisee, and they feel like they now have a right to be there at the table. They now feel like they're, they're, they're self-justified, the life that they're living. They've, they've achieved all they want to achieve. They're doing pretty well. Again, they're not doing some of the bad things. They're staying away from some of those things. They're trying to do all the good things they can. And those are the people that don't see sinners the way God does. And those are the people that are disgusted by others. And those are the people who think they have the right to sit at the table with Jesus. Don't need to bring him what what would be customary, what would be there. Guys, our story has to be that of the woman. We have to constantly come back to that there is no way that I deserve the forgiveness that I've been given. There's no way. Now, sure, if you want to live a life 
that's living for the moment, that's living for the now, that's living for the next paycheck, that's living for the next thing, that's working your way to retirement, that's working, that's kind of living in the, in, the, in the season of life, then yes, you can live your life and you'll be living as if Christ isn't needed at all. But if you want to live your life in the way God's called you to live your life in terms of on mission for him, then I'm promising you, you're never going to be able to get past the fact that I don't deserve to be here. You know, Paul, when Paul would share his story with people, do you know he called himself the chief of all sinners? You know that? Like he would, he would address himself as, yeah, I know, you guys are, I know you guys are awful and you're pagans and you've killed people and you do horrible things. Yeah, I'm the chief of all sinners. Like if they gave out awards, I'd be first place sinner. I'd be the sinniest sin, sinner of them all. I don't know how you'd say that, right? Like, that's who he was. And he didn't have any problem sharing that. He didn't have any problem sharing, like, I killed people, I, I arrested people, I beat people, I was, I, was the, I was against everything with God. I'm the chief of all sinners. And all I have to tell you is, that, listen, you do not have to do those things in order for you to realize that you are the chief of all sinners. One thing I've noticed just the longer and longer and the closer I've tried to walk with Christ is that the closer I, be, I, I get to Christ, the, more, the, the, the reality of the darkness of my flesh comes into full view. The reality of the darkness of my nature continues to be revealed to me. I don't have to kill a man to know that I can. Does that make sense? I don't have to do some of the things to, that know that, to know that I'm perfectly always willing and able to do them. The darkness of my own heart allows me that when I'm sharing the good news with somebody and trying to share my reason why, there is nothing they could say that it would offend me. There is no sin they could come up with that would make me view them any differently than God already views them. There is nothing they could say that would blow me away and be like, oh, I can't talk to you about that because I'm the chief of all sinners. I already know the darkness of my own, my own flesh, my own heart. I, why? Because I was dead. Dead, empty, void, lifeless, without Christ. And it's only because of how rich he is in mercy. Do you see how this changes the conversation you'd have with somebody? Somebody comes to you and is measuring their sin, and you get to go, God doesn't measure sin that way. Let me tell you what he does measure. He's so rich in mercy. He is so full of grace that there's absolutely nothing that his mercy doesn't cover and that his grace can't still give you. We define grace as a church. I point it as if it's out there. It's not out there. Um, we define grace as a value in our church, and we basically say, there's nothing that you've ever done that makes God love you any, any less. Why? Because he doesn't measure sin the way we measure sin. But there's nothing you could do to make God love you any more than he already does. Why? Because he's, the fullness of grace is at work. He doesn't dole it out based on your behavior based on how you did this week, based on how, well, how, bad you, how bad you did this week. 
when we prepare to, to have that answer, when we, when we want to share the good news and just be prepared to share people why it is, why do we live as Christ as Lord of our life? Why would you choose to do that? Well, I can't get over the mercy and grace of God. I can't get over <laughs> receiving what I, what I wasn't, what, what, what I didn't deserve. I was, go ahead and go to the slide, I was forgiven. God is so patient with me in my growing as a, as a Christian. He is so patient as I become more and more and more like Jesus in the sanctification process. Like, that's part of mercy. He is so loving and compassionate to see me and see all my junk and still choose to love me the way he does. And I get what I could never achieve. I get salvation. I get to be made right with God. I get to be redeemed. He's redeeming everything that's bad about me to be used for his glory. And I wake up every morning with absolute hope for the future. I'm not, I don't have to just live for today. I don't have to just live for now. What, what, was, what was in your email or text box this morning or what happened yesterday, or what, none of that matters. Because his mercies are new every morning. I live in the fullness of his grace. I wake up in the morning and I have absolute hope every day. And if I really want to be prepared to share that with someone, man, I got to remember, I got to be able to see Jesus in light of who I really am. And know that the thing I'm measuring is the thing he measures. Not the other way around. Let's pray together this morning. God, I'm, I'm forever grateful as I think about how your word teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains us this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about people listening this morning that you're teaching us something new. Maybe it's something we've never heard before. Maybe it's something that we need to be reminded of consistently. God, you're, you're rebuking us because you're telling us we're wrong in the assumptions we always make that you measure sin the way we do. God, your word corrects us and helps renew our mind so that we don't consistently drift away from you thinking that we really aren't that bad and we really didn't need that much, but to be reminded that we're dead dead in our sin outside of you. God, would you use your word to train us today, to equip us, to help us be prepared better to share the good news of your son Jesus <laughs> and the reason why we have made you Lord of our life. Jesus, it's in your precious name we pray this.